have a question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. Check out all the great deals on Amazon by first going to D2RPN.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend, and thanks for listening. The Think Tank Podcast. And now, coming to you pre-recorded, deep undercover, in the world's deepest, darkest, most secure, Hadron Collider and Nuclear Bomb Tested and Approved Doomsday Bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man. When America was attacked on the morning of 9-11, Hundreds of hours of military and air traffic control conversations were captured on tape. I can't get a hold of the United 175 at all. Recovered from government archives. Now, for the first time, they're pieced together in full. Our number one is up What? Oh! What was that? They reveal the chaos. Betty, connect to me. Betty? Do you think you lost her? I think we might have lost her. Total confusion. We have some planes. Nobody move. Just get me somebody who has the authority to get me over in here now. And the chilling reality of just how unprepared America was for its ultimate day of reckoning. I don't know where I'm scrambling these guys to. I need a direction, uh, 
destination. Our communications were not designed for this type of a war. We have no idea where he's going. No idea, sir. Our interactions were not designed for this type of war. 737. Hey, what? The world trade. Who are you talking to? We're the fighters. They're going to wreck Washington. The vast infrastructure that had been built to protect the country had completely failed. They're going to wreck Washington. A new type of war. That's what it is. Canada September 11th, 2001 was a uh, beautiful weather day. It was beautiful. There was not a cloud in the sky. It was really, really blue. Good morning, ground. Static 3601 heavy. Pushback from cargo in November. Good morning. Good morning. For Ben Sliney, September the 11th was his first day as the new chief of air traffic control at the FAA. It was brilliantly clear. Uh, I arrived around 6 and quite frankly thought that I would have uh, quite an easy day of it uh, for the first day on shift. 1043 monitor ground point 9, I'll call you in sequence. Have a good ride. Have a good day. Just outside Syracuse in upstate New York is NEADS, the Northeast Air Defense Sector. Their responsibility is to defend the eastern seaboard of America from enemy attack. On September the 11th, Colonel Bob Marr was overseeing a routine military exercise, Operation Vigilant Guardian, which simulated an attack by Russian bombers on North America. Our primary mission was to defend the United States from external threats. This first day would be mostly to make sure that we followed procedures and requirements as established and build up to what I would suspect later on in the week could be a full-blown World War III or, or some variation thereof. You just never knew really what was going to happen in those exercises. For the military, it's a regular day, and the mood on the operations floor is relaxed. Okay, a couch, a love seat, an ottoman, and what else? Oh. I was like, okay, we pay $200 for it. It's blue, it's big, you know, and poofy. 23-year-old Stasha Roundtree was an ID technician. Her job was to identify the locations of potential enemy aircraft. She'd finished her training just six weeks before 9-11. Was it on sale? Yeah. Mm. What color is it? Holy smokes. No matter how trivial, almost every word these people say, in both military and air traffic control centers, is recorded. It didn't matter if it was midnight, you know, or two in the morning. As soon as you picked up a phone or were plugged in with somebody else, you were automatically recorded. Every transmission, every voice communication between the controllers and the pilots are all recorded. At 8.09 a.m., Boston Air Traffic Control makes routine contact with the captain of American Airlines Flight 11. American 11, Boston. Boston good morning, American 11 with you. Passing through 190 230. American 11, Boston. Uh, center, Roger, climb in here, 280. The supervisor in charge at Boston 
was Dan Bueno. Nothing was, uh, was strange or out of, out of the ordinary. But just five minutes later, at 8.14, Boston loses contact with the plane's captain. American 11, Boston. American 1-1, one, one, uh, the American on the frequency. How do you hear me? This is Boston. I turned American 20 left and I was in a clown. He will not respond to me now. At Looks all. like he's turning right. Yeah, I turned him 20 right. You I'm want not to answer He's Nardo. Roger. All right. Thanks. All of a sudden, the, the aircraft goes uh, no radio. American 11, if you hear Boston Center, I can please or acknowledge. American 11, if you hear Boston Center, uh, recontact Boston Center on 127.82. That's American 11, 127.82. At 8.19, a phone call comes into an American Airlines reservation office from a flight stewardess on board American 11. Ma'am, what seat are you in? We're, we're just left off and we're up in the air. I know. We're supposed to go to L.A. and the cockpit's not answering their phone. Okay, but what seat are you sitting in? What's the number of your seat? Okay, I'm in my jump seat right now. Okay. At 3R. What is your name? Okay, my name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. And the cockpit is not answering their phone. And there's somebody staffed in business class. And there's, we can't breathe in business class. Somebody's got mates or something. Can you describe the person that you said someone is what in business class? Um, our number one is got staffed. Uh, our person is staffed. Um, nobody knows who's staffed who. And we, we can't even get up to business class right now because nobody can breathe. And we can't get the cockpit. The door won't open. Hello? In Boston, air traffic control are still unable to make contact with the aeroplane. American 1-1, one, one, uh, the American on the frequency. How do you hear me? American 11, if you hear Boston Center, I can please or acknowledge. Then, at 8.24, a voice directly from the plane's cockpit. We have some planes, just stay quiet and we'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. And uh, who's trying to call me here? American 11, are you trying to call? Nobody move. Everything will be okay. If you try to make any move, you'll danger yourself and the airplane. Just stay quiet. Like a punch in the gut, it was just a very unnerving, you know, sense of, you know, uh, helplessness. In Boston, flight service manager Michael Woodward received a phone call from onboard American 11. It was from one of his staff, flight attendant Amy Sweeney. She said, you know, thank God it's you. Listen to me and listen to me very carefully. Michael's phone line is not recorded. So he relays the conversation to a colleague sitting next to him. He passes on the details to American Airlines headquarters. Okay, we've got the flight attendant on the line here. Amy Sweeney? Yeah, she's the number nine. I'm, I'm going to read his notes for you. Um, it looks like uh, he's Middle Eastern, he speaks no English. He was in 10B, 10 Baker, 
Nine D and G. Speaks no speaks no English. Uh, the plane's in a rapid descent. Okay, the flight attendants are concerned. They don't know what's going on in the cockpit. Are you in con contact with them? Okay, it looks like there is severe bleeding. That uh, he's keeping them, keeping her on the line. Um, there's severe bleeding. There is a slashed throat. Michael, is that severe? Is that slashed throat a flight attendant? No. By 8.29, American 11 has been out of contact with air traffic control for 15 minutes. Dan Bueno in Boston alerts the FAA command center. I got a little situation with American 1-1, one, one, American 11. Let me get managed. And heading uh, southwestbound. 29. Heading southbound. Heading southwestbound. You have no idea where he's going? No idea, sir. I start to think, what do I do here now? Four minutes later, at 8.33, Bueno breaks standard hijack protocol and contacts his nearest Air Force base, Otis, in Massachusetts. I am Bueno from Washington. I have a situation with American 11, a possible hijack. American 11? Yes, sir, departed Boston, going to LAX. Right now he's out to Albany. Let us scramble some fighters to go tell him. But the order to scramble jets at Otis must come from NIADS in upstate New York, where they are just about to begin their military exercise, Operation Vigilant Guardian. Hi, Boston Center, TMU. We have a, a problem here. We have a hijacked aircraft headed towards New York, and we need you guys to, we need someone to scramble some F-16s or something up there. Is this real world or exercise? No, this is not an exercise manifest. He didn't preface real world or exercise, and that's where my quote comes in, is this real world or exercise? He said, no, this is real world. It's like, okay. Okay, hey, uh, hold on one second, okay? Yep. Hey, 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 hey. On the operations floor, the ID technicians overhear the word hijack. What? What was that? Our first reaction, I know you heard there, was like, cool, because this was usually not something that was very devastating. So we all, you know, nonchalantly opened up our checklists and started to do what we had to do for a hijack. I remember distinctly seeing several people huddled around one of the radar scopes. That is usually not a good sign. Immediately, a call is issued to superiors. The mission crew commander, who was uh, Kevin Nisipany at this time, he is basically in charge of the entire operations floor. He is the most senior guy on the floor. Uh, real world hijack, 40 miles north of Kennedy. Do you have time to give me any other? Yeah. Like Otis on battle station. Boy, well, notice on battle station. The first thing I'd directed was uh, for the fighters to go with the battle stations. And that really just takes the pilots that are on alert and puts them in the cockpit. But there are over 3,000 commercial aircraft in the skies, and NIADs have no location reference for the hijacked plane. We need a location for our fighters to be able to go up there and, and you know, single out that aircraft. 
that the hijackers are one step ahead of both the military and civilian authorities. They've turned off the plane's transponder. We rely on the transponder, a coded signal that is transmitted from each aircraft in the system. It tells our computer the aircraft's uh, call sign, speed, and altitude. We're checking to get some information from you if we could. It's uh, American 11. He's heading yep. towards Kennedy. Uh, looks like his speed is decreasing. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where. Nobody really. Once the hijackers uh, turned off the transponder, in all respects, it, he was quite invisible to us. And where are they going now, do you know? No idea. With Flight American 11 hijacked out of Boston, NIADS, the Northeast Air Defense Sector, are desperately trying to locate the missing plane. The aircraft is seven minutes away from the World Trade Center, and the hijackers have turned off its transponder. These guys knew what they were doing. They knew that we needed this to locate them. They turned it off, they went lower, they went slower, everything you know, to, to stop us from being able to get that exact location. Is he inbound to JFK? We don't know. You don't know where he is at all? He's being hijacked. The pilot's having a hard time talking. And both sides are doing everything they can to try and identify where this American Airlines Flight 11 Heavy is. And there's just not a whole lot of information for them to give. Using only basic radar estimates, Dan Bueno knows American 11 is approaching New York. He calls to inform them. Okay, Drake on high, Boston Center. Uh, good morning, American 11. Uh, 767, possible hijack. Okay, American 11, 75, and uh, Boston. Where's he landing? Uh, right now, we don't have any idea, but uh, he was losing speed very okay. rapidly. And... Uh, we believe he's on the descent, that's why he's, uh, he's, he's wow. going down. We were just monitoring him and trying to keep airplanes out of his way. That's what you do with a hijack at that time. Back at American Airlines, flight attendant Amy Sweeney is still on the line to her boss, Michael Woodward, directly from the hijacked plane. She was increasingly alarmed and she said, you know, the airplane's all over the place, something's happening, you know, we're flying, you know, erratically, um, we're, we're, we're in a rapid descent. The call is not recorded, but Michael relays the details to a colleague sitting next to him, who is on the line to American Airlines headquarters. She started screaming and saying something's wrong and now he's having trouble. No. Okay. I think he might be disconnected. Okay, we just lost um, connection. Lost the connection. Yeah. Something's wrong with the airplane? I just sat there for a second and thought, okay, well, hopefully she's going to call back. At exactly the same time, the reservations desk are trying to keep the line open with the only other contact on the hijacked plane. Amy's colleague, Betty Ong. Okay, I'm still on with security, okay, Betty? 
You're doing a great job. Just, just stay calm, okay? We are, absolutely. What's going on, honey? Okay, the aircraft is erratic again. Bobby, very erratic. What's going on, Betty? Betty, talk to me. Betty, are you there? Betty? We, I think we might have lost her. With American 11 descending rapidly over New York, F-15s at Otis are ordered to chase it down. There's hundreds with an active air defense scramble for Panda 4546. Scramble immediately. FCC, I don't know where I'm scrambling these guys to. I need a direction, uh, destination. But just as the fighter jets are preparing to take off, I started getting a lot of reports from airplanes as saying, what's going on in New York? There's a lot of smoke coming out of the Trade Center. Tenant Tower reports that there was a fire at the World Trade Center. And that's, uh, that's the area where we lost the airplane. I remember uh, me and Dan Bueno looking at each other and it's like, that wouldn't have been American 11. Could it have been? Could it be? Is there any plane to What? No, sir. Is it 737? It was. The World Trade Center. Who are you talking to? Get past, pass it to them. Oh, my God. Oh, God. Oh my God! An airplane just hit the World Trade Center, and I parroted that back to everybody. Yes, ma'am. Did you just hear the information regarding the World Trade Center? No. Being hit by an aircraft. I'm sorry. Being hit by an aircraft. It's on the world news. Almost immediately, at that point, the controller just next to me says, I've got another situation right here. United 175, New York. United 175, do you read New York? United 175, do you read New York? I actually turned to the supervisor and I said, I think I have another hijacking going on over here. We have some problems over here right now. I can't get a hold of the United 175 at all right now. And I don't know where he went to. With the World Trade Center in flames and another aircraft reported missing, commanders at Niad's military base 
have abandoned Operation Vigilant Guardian and are now fully immersed in a real-world crisis. Who's plugged in up there? Plug in. Okay, this is what I got so far. Okay. Okay, this is what we... Okay, now we do. Yes, this is what I got. Possible news at 7.37 just hit the World Trade Center. This is real world. But the F-15s have only just left Otis Air Force Base. Even at top speed, they are seven minutes flying time from New York City. We aren't able to look out a window and see something. None of the fighters are close enough yet. The crash pretty much happened simultaneously at the time that, that they're getting rolling. So they're still, what, easily 170 miles away, I believe, at the time? Okay, continue taking the fighters down to the New York City area, JFK area, as best as you can. Make sure that the FAA clears the your route all the way through. Just do what we got to do, okay? Just press with it. At 9.02... Another call comes into the military from New York Air Traffic Control. They had a second possible hijack. Oh, God. I know. What phone are you on? Yeah, we found that one out. On the line. United 175 is the other aircraft. Oh, my God. Okay, it's pretty serious. In New York, controller Dave Batilia is trying to keep a handle on the missing plane, which is fast approaching the city. He calls the tower on the runway at Newark Airport. United 175, do you read New York? 10. Hello. Do you um, see that United 175 anywhere? That United 175 that just took off out of a thing. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. 10 I knew something bad was going on. We're not responding to any transmissions. United 175, New York. And all of a sudden, he started to make a radical descent. Hey, can you look out your window right now? Can you see God about 4,000 feet, about 5 east of the airport right now? Looks like he's... Oh, yeah, I see him. You see God, look, is he descending through the building also? He's descending really quick, too, yeah. Well, that's... Oh, he's 500 feet now. He just dropped 800 feet in like, a, like one, one sweep. That's, that's another situation. What kind of airplane is that? Can you guys tell? I don't know. I'll read it out in a minute. As he got down to around 2,000, he says, Oh, my God, he's in the ground on the next hit. And then somebody yelled out, Oh, my God, that's the Trade Center right there. busy air traffic control area became absolutely dead silent. Sickening. All of us, I, I can remember there was absolutely no talking going on. Everybody was like in shock. I think an airplane just plowed into the city. 
I, they did. Uh, uh, the World Trade Center hit the top. No, another one. We just saw another one do it. Another one? Yeah. Holy cow. He says, hey, another one just hit. And it was, you know, now we're like freaking out, basically. Like, uh, what what's going on now? It's like we have no idea what's going on. At Niad's military base, 200 miles away, they're watching the nightmare unfold live on television. Is this explosion part of that that we're looking at now on TV? Boston yes. is now grounding. Holy cow. That made everybody sink, and I swear everybody at the same time just kind of... It was like... I don't even know how to explain it. Just uh, that real... It's real. It's happening. People are being killed. With America now under direct attack, there's still no sign of fighter jets over New York. The second one just hit the trade center. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna get to. We're gonna alert the military uh, uh, real quick on this. Uh. No, we have several situations going on here. It's uh, escalating big, big time. That we need to get the military involved with us. Well, what's going on? Just get me somebody who has the authority to get military in the air now. All right. But by 9:07, four minutes after the second plane hit, the F-15s are still over 100 miles outside Manhattan. This is what I foresee that we probably need to do. We need to talk to FAA. We need to tell them if this stuff is going to keep on going. We need to take those fighters, put them over Manhattan. Okay? Because we don't know how many guys are out of pocket. Mystery 2 could be more. I don't know. That's the best thing. That's the best play right now. Okay? And the bad news just keeps coming. American 77, Indy. American 77, American Indy Radio. Check how do you read? There wasn't even a minute or two delay when the other controller said, we got a problem here. This is uh, Henderson, American 77. I don't know what happened to him. I'm trying to oh, read it. turn it took a turn to the south, and uh, now I'm, uh, I don't know what altitude he's at or what he's doing. Over Indianapolis, another plane has gone off the radar. Two hijacked planes have hit the World Trade Center in New York. Over Indianapolis, another plane has gone missing. Realizing that America is under attack, the FAA order no more takeoffs across the entire country. I directed that uh, no other flights be allowed to depart in the United States, a national ground stop order, at least gaining partial control in that there would be no more aircraft joining the national airspace system. There are over 4,000 planes in the sky, and amongst all the confusion, at 9.21, NIADS, the Northeast Air Defense Sector, receive a report of yet another hijacked plane. Military Boston Center just had a report that American 11 is still in the air and it's on its way towards heading towards Washington. American 11 is still in the air. Yes, there was, was definitely another aircraft that hit the tower. That's the latest report we have. The information is relayed across the floor. 
Give me a location. Third aircraft hijack heading towards Washington. The new sighting of American 11 is actually a mistake. American 11 is the plane that hit the World Trade Center 35 minutes earlier. The Ops 4 is being bombarded by multiple inputs at any one given time. There are a lot of things being reported, and not all of them are accurate. Because of this error, NIADs now believe another hijacked plane is heading towards the capital, and they have to take action. Okay, uh, American Airlines is still airborne. 11, the first guy, he's heading towards Washington. Okay, I think we need to scramble Langley right now, and I'm going to take the fighters from Otis and try to chase this guy down if I can find him. You sure? Yeah. Foxy, scramble Langley, head towards the Washington area. Roger that. Fighter jets are ordered to scramble from Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, and they head eastward on a standard flight path. But 400 miles away, yet more trouble is about to break out. Cleveland Air Traffic Control are in routine contact with United 93. United 93, that traffic three is 1 o'clock, 12 miles eastbound, 370. Negative contact, we're looking at United 93. <laughs> The sounds of screaming are coming directly from the cockpit. And just four minutes later, control overhear another chilling message. Uh, calling Cleveland Center, you're unreadable. Say again slowly. Back at NIADS, the operations floor receive yet another hijack report. Okay, let me tell you this. I, I, we've been looking. We're also lost American 77. American 77. American 77. Where was he proposed to head, sir? Excuse me? Where was he proposed to head, sir? Okay, he was going to L.A. also. He was also going to L.A. They lost contact with him. They lost everything, and they don't have any idea where he is or what happened. Now there's an American 77 that they believe to be coming. So we think we have two headed that direction. Just one minute later, at 9.35, more news comes in about one of the two missing planes believed to be over Washington. The Phantom American 11. Our latest report, aircraft VFR six miles southeast of the White House. Six miles southeast of the White House? Yep. East. Six miles is just seconds in flying time. The White House is now in imminent danger. You know, we honest to God thought we were literally being attacked from all angles. With the capital under attack, the military call in the Langley fighters. Okay, I got an aircraft six miles east of the White House. Turn and burn and crank it up. Six miles. But the F-16s from Langley 
are 60 miles off the coastline, 150 miles away from the capital. Colonel Nasipani, in charge at Niaz, realizes they've flown the wrong way. Why'd they go out there? Nasipani got really, really pissed. He gave a direction to fly jets directly north, uh, but they were sent uh, out towards east. And you heard him say, well, what the hell did they send them out there for? Why'd they go out there? God damn it. Okay. Our mission was really to protect the United States from a threat over water. So you had standardized scramble procedures that take you out over water. Colonel Nasipani orders the F-16s back to the capital. Okay, push it back. Is that airliner? Don't run them. To the White House. Okay. What are we doing? We're going direct to East. For reference, whiskey. They're going direct Washington. Five. They're going direct Washington. It was, you know, light them up. Let's get them down there where they need to be. Hey, can you need to get those back up. Okay. I don't care how many windows you break. Major was, I don't care how many windows you break. Go supersonic. You know, two jets have already hit. You know, the two towers. You know, rules are out the window right now. You know, we're getting there. Even at full speed, the F-16s are at least five minutes away. While they are still in the air. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, live picture from Washington, there is smoke pouring out of the Pentagon. The plane that smashed into the Pentagon wasn't the Phantom American 11, believed to be heading for the White House, but in fact the other missing plane, American 77. Okay, the aircraft that is covered by the White House is now near the Pentagon. I don't know where the hell they're getting there until I said Washington has no clue when I called Washington about it. They didn't know what the hell was going on. What is this guy that's going on TV now? I don't know. Hey. What the fuck is this about? And I'm like, they hit the Pentagon. They hit the freaking Pentagon. And I looked at Sergeant Dooley. If she's no kidding doing this and looking at me and these tears are coming down. And I said, hey, we don't have time for that. Turn around, do your job. Go ahead. Pentagon just got hit. God damn it, I can't even protect my NCA. We've gone from uh, this peacetime, pure peacetime environment, almost into full wartime within an hour. Uh, it, was, it was pretty dramatic. What's next? World Trade Centers, Pentagon, the White House was just mentioned. You know, what could they possibly do now? With the headquarters of the American military now hit, Ben Sliney at the FAA decides to clear the skies of America of all civilian aircraft. I wanted to gain control over the situation. In my mind, we, there were missiles flying around, and I wanted to take as many out of the sky as possible what was left we'd, we'd have to deal with, either militarily or in some other fashion. But while NIADs are attempting to defend the capital, and the FAA are trying to clear the skies, one flight over Cleveland is causing concern for local air traffic controllers. 
At 9.34, Cleveland Control notifies the FAA Command Center. United 93 may have a bomb on board. Okay, United 93, who's speaking? Cleveland Center. Okay, and can you give me any additional information as to why you believe there may be a bomb? Uh, because he's screaming that on the frequency. Two minutes later, Cleveland calls the FAA again. United 93 has now turned around and is flying back towards Washington. They ask for immediate military support. Our question here is, our, our aircraft that we have has climbed, turned, and is not talking to us. So do we want to scramble? we got a couple of local military here. Okay, that's a decision that has to be made at a different level. Or is someone talking about it at least? What's the call sign again? It's United 93. He's right over Cleveland. But the FAA did not pass on this vital information about United 93 to the military. As things turned out, uh, the FAA headquarters never notified the military about, uh, about United 93. The military learned about it almost by accident. I don't think it's a valid question to ask whether they talked with us enough. It's that our communications were not designed for this type of a war. Our interactions were not designed for this type of a war. At 9.39, United 93's hijackers mistakenly broadcast an announcement meant for the passengers on board. Hi, the captain. I would like to all to remain seated. We have uh, home aboard and we are going to take the airport and we have our demand so people remain quiet. Passengers on board United 93 start making calls to loved ones. Mark Bingham phones his mother but gets cut off. She calls back and leaves him a message. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Mark, this is your mom. The news is that it's been hijacked by terrorists. They are planning to probably use the plane as a target to hit some site on the ground. So if you possibly can, try to overpower these guys. Try to call me back if you can. Uh, I'd love to be Good luck. Bye-bye. At 9.59, live on global television, first World Trade Center collapses. With the Pentagon already hit, America has gone in under 60 minutes from peacetime to being in the grip of the biggest terrorist attack in its history. It would seem that the United States on this day is under attack from terrorists. Up in the skies, a fourth hijacked plane, United 93, is still heading for Washington. And the military have received no information about it. Clearly it was a failure of the command and control structure at FAA headquarters because they had the information um, that United 93 was hijacked almost in real time, within five minutes. The bottom line was we didn't have the communication pieces that we needed. We weren't speaking to the correct people in the FAA that we probably needed to speak to. There are disconnects, there's no doubt about it. Finally, at seven minutes past 10, 39 minutes after United 93 was hijacked, a call comes through to NIADS. Uh, we got a United 93 out here, are you aware of that? That has a bomb on board. A bomb on board. 
And this is confirmed. Do you have a mode 3, sir? No, we lost this transponder. But even if United 93 could be located, fighter jets have no clear guidance what to do should they intercept it. What happens when we get there? What are we going to do? Are, are we firing? We can't just arbitrarily just shoot you know, anybody we want out of the air. Negative, negative clearance to shoot. Jamie, 1527, Brian. God damn it, Foxy. I'm not really worried about code words. Fuck the code words, that's perishable information. Negative clearance to fire. ID type tail. Over 90 minutes after the first hijack, the military still do not have clearance to shoot down United 93 or any other hijacked plane. Just four minutes later, NIADs call Washington Air Traffic Control for more information. I also want to give you a heads up, Washington. Go ahead. United 93, have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He's down? Yes. When did he land? Because we he, have information. He, he, he did not land. Oh, he's down? Yeah, down? somewhere up northeast of Camp David. Finding out that it didn't and it actually had crashed, um, it was just another plane that we couldn't stop. Northeast of Camp David. That's the, that's the last report. They don't know exactly where. This was devastating, uh, this crash of United 93. Not that none of the other ones were any less devastating or more. It's just that it's another one on top of the already three that we know. The truth is that the critical moments, the last line of defense for the country was the passengers on, on United 93 and the crew. The vast infrastructure that had been built to protect the country had completely failed. At 10.32, 29 minutes after United 93 had gone down, a vital message finally comes through to NIATS. You need to read this. Region commander has declared that we can shoot down tracks that do not respond to our uh, to our kick. I'll pass out the weapons. Okay. He, he basically said we will take lives in the air to preserve lives on the ground. Okay. Hey, okay. You read that from the vice president, right? Vice president has cleared. Vice president has cleared us to intercept tracks. You know what they want? Uh, shoot them down if they do not respond first on our CC. As it turned out, there were no more hijacked planes in the sky. The order to shoot them down came too late. In many ways, Niad spent that whole morning chasing phantoms. One was really a phantom, but the other planes were hard to find, and when they did find them, it was too late. And when they got reports, the event had already happened. So they had spent these frantic, uh, you know, a hundred some minutes chasing uh, chasing phantoms and not catching one of them. These tapes reveal not only the extraordinary chaos and confusion that engulfed America on the morning of 9-11, but also just how unprepared the military superpower was for the greatest terrorist attack in its history. The message that he left for me meant everything to me. I clung to it. I listened to it repeatedly. 
in the days after. Everybody has told me that has lost loved ones, you lose the sound of their voice. I've probably listened to the message hundreds of times. It's available anytime I want to play it back. It's there. I hear it. And I, I know it. I'm still very fragile to listen to it. And so I'm comforted to know it's there, but I don't, I don't listen to it. On September the 11th, 2001, nearly 3,000 families lost a loved one. The Twin Towers collapsed with such destructive force that only 300 bodies were recovered. But for some families, there is another legacy. Trapped inside the towers, many people tried to make desperate contact with the outside world. Some were able to speak on the phone. Others could only leave messages. Since that day, families have lived with the memory of these final words from their loved ones. Many of these calls have never been heard in public and are featured here for the first time. All are used with the full consent of the relatives, who only now feel ready to talk about them. These recordings shed light on what really happened inside the towers. But they also reveal something more profound about the choices people make in their final moments. Who to turn to and what to say. Uh, obviously a pretty scary experience. I saw a guy fall out of probably the 91st story all the way down. Okay. Now you can stand in line with me. My dog, Coco, wakes me up somewhere approximately 5.30 in the morning and wants to go for a walk. So at 5.30 in the morning, I get out of bed, brush my teeth, throw some water on my face. We walk through the woods for half an hour, 40 minutes. I say a little prayer uh, every single day and talk to Melissa. So it's just, I, I know she's there, I know she's listening to me. I was the last person from the outside world that she spoke to. I'll always remember that. When you fall asleep sometimes at night and you close your eyes, you can just see her face there saying, Dad, I love you. On September the 11th, Bob Harrington's daughter, Melissa, was in New York for just one day. Age 31, she was a high-powered business executive and was there to oversee the merger of her company. The meeting was on the 101st floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. She was only going to be there that Tuesday. When the merger was done, she was flying back to California the next day. You know, there's a fire. I love you, I love you. 
found nothing of Jim. He was completely destroyed. So the fact that I've spoken to him means so much to me. I think that the healing process is ongoing. It's important to let people know what families of 9-11 have been experiencing, what we've been going through, what we've gone through. We still have those memories that we don't want anybody to ever forget. Jill Gartenberg had just started a family with her 35-year-old husband, Jim. A successful real estate executive, Jim had recently accepted a promotion at a new company. On September the 11th, he had only gone in to clear his desk at his office on the 86th floor of the North Tower. Saying goodbye, I love you, is the last thing I can remember seeing him walking out the door that morning on September 11th. We just had a, a plane crash into level four of the World Trade Center. The World Trade Center, tower number one, is on fire. The whole outside of the building was just send every available ambulance to the World Trade Center now. In the minutes after American Airlines Flight 11 collided with the North Tower, the live pictures were flashed across the world. We have numerous, numerous people trapped. But those inside were unable to see what had happened. Desperate for information, they made more than 3,000 calls in the first 10 minutes alone. He says he's at the 105th floor at One World Trade Center. At the top of the North Tower, 100 people were attending a conference at the Windows on the World restaurant. Among them, was 31-year-old Christopher Hanley, who made one of the first recorded calls to 911 emergency services that day. Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm on the 106th floor of the uh, World Trade Center. We just had an explosion. The 106th floor? Yes. 106, okay. We have smoke and it's pretty bad. We can't get down the stairs. All right. We have about 100 people up here. Do not leave, okay? There's a fire or an explosion or something in the building. All right. I want you to stay where you are. Yes. All right. We're there. We're coming up to get you. See the smoke coming up from outside the windows, Jeff? All right. We're on the way. Just sit tight. All right. Just sit tight. We're on the way. All right. Please hurry. Christopher was our only child. It was so special. To be able to have the uh, the 911 audio was really very important. The most emotional, poignant moment for me is when he asked him, please hurry and thank you. To be able to have that uh, presence uh, of mind uh, under pressure like that, I thought was just remarkable. I was really proud of him. I mean, he, to be able to keep that cool and request, please hurry. I think that was his last words.
the sonic record of that day, the audible record of that day, is essential because the visual record of that day is limited to the exteriors. What we see with our eyes are two buildings in flames. And these calls and these radio transmissions, they show us through sound what we couldn't see with our eyes. They're part of the fabric of the day that we wouldn't know or have any understanding of without this sonic record. There's a tree in front of my house that was planted the week after Melissa was born. The tree grew up, Melissa grew up, and uh, the tree grew up to be probably the biggest tree on the street. And Melissa grew up to be such a fine, nice, beautiful young lady. Melissa would have been 39 last week. Now the tree is probably 40, 50 feet high. When I planted it, it was five feet high and as skinny as two fingers together. So, you know, I look out and I see that tree and I just remember the day she was born. September 11th started like any other morning. Woke up, put a pot of coffee in. I was making the bed and the telephone rang. I don't usually answer the phone because having been in construction my whole life, people call up, have a tendency to want you to do a job for them for nothing or give them some advice, so I don't usually answer the phone. But this morning, I did. It was my daughter, Melissa. I knew she was in New York. I didn't know anything that had happened at that particular point in time. Melissa was a little hysterical. I told her, honey, you have to slow down so that your father can understand what the problem is. She got her composure, said to me, Dad, I'm on 101st floor of the World Trade Center, and a bomb just went off. In my bedroom was a TV set. I turned it on, happened to be on CNN. I saw the fire. I saw the smoke. I was heartbroken. She told me that fire wasn't her major concern, but there was an awful lot of smoke. So I said to her, honey, I said, can you see an exit sign? She said, yes, Dad. And I said, well, under all the exit signs, honey, are stairwells. I said, you get to that stairwell as fast as you can and get out of the building. But unknown to Melissa and her father, all three of the stairwells had been destroyed. Trapped just three floors above the impact zone, Melissa would have no means of escape. She was in trouble, and she called her father for help. I was 130 miles away. There was nothing I could do but, but give her advice. We exchanged I love yous. And to my knowledge, I was the last person from the outside world that she spoke with. In the immediate aftermath of the attack, 
the emergency services were overwhelmed by thousands of calls from the North Tower. In the location you are, but something by the door to block the front. Stay where you are. We have you on the 92nd floor, southwest corner. Sir, if you can get out of the building, then get out of the building. If you can't, just remain there and somebody will get you. How many other people are with you right now? 200? Happy birthday! Whoa. Yeah. Whoa! Okay, you want to open this? This is Nicole. This was my favorite toy when I was two. I hope you like it. Exactly. I think 9-11 comes up pretty regularly in everybody's lives. I mean, you watch television, you go to an airport, anytime you travel. Oh. You didn't go to Zeta's house? So much has changed since 9-11. Everybody talks about 9-11. It's in the newspapers probably every day. And all I think about when I hear that 9-11 is, I am so proud that my husband did what he could that morning. Jim Gartenberg had accepted a better paid job at a new company four days earlier. Welcome news, as his wife Jill was pregnant with their second child. September the 11th was his last commute to work at the North Tower. I went to work soon after he did, and my office is very close to our apartment, so I just walked a few blocks. When I got there, there was a message light blinking, and I listened to the machine right away. And that was, I didn't even know what that meant. I listened to the message actually several times because I wasn't really sure what he was saying. I couldn't believe what he was saying. Just a minute later, I spoke to him. Unlike the message on the machine, which sounded frantic, when I first spoke to him, he sounded very calm, very controlled. He said to me, I'm going to be okay. You know, there's a fire, but I'm going to be okay. And he said, he was, I said, stay down low. I mean, right? What we learned, stay down low if there's a fire. And he stayed down low, and he was hiding behind a desk, and he was trying to call for help, and he had no idea what was going on. 500 miles away in Chicago, Jim's closest friend, Adam, had only just arrived at work. I turned on CNBC and they said, you know, we go live to the World Trade Center and there was smoke coming out of the building. The first thing I did was call his office. He picked up the phone right away and he had a, a, a voice that I had never heard before and it was, you know, just utter panic and fear and expletives. There's fire, there's smoke everywhere, there's debris, I can't get out. You got to get me out of here. He had asked what happened and he, he didn't know and, and I didn't know. Jim Gartenberg was on the 86th floor of the North Tower. Although he was six floors below the point of impact, Jim and a colleague were trapped by debris as the floors collapsed above them. His comments were then real calm. Okay, what are we supposed to do? And I told him, there's fire and it's going up, you need to get down. 
he said, I can't go anywhere. The stairs are blown out below us. You know, the debris is too heavy. We can't move anything. It was very unusual that people outside had almost a greater sense of alarm and urgency than the people inside who were in the dark. Families were seeing the billowing smoke and the flames licking up the side of the building. It was just a terrible responsibility for the people on the outside to have to say, it's worse than you think. Fifteen minutes after the North Tower had been hit, most people in Tower 2, the South Tower, were still at their desks and watching the tragedy unfold. Amongst them was 24-year-old trader Brad Fetchett, who left a message for his mother to tell her he was safe. Hey, Mom, it's Brad. Uh, just wanted to call and let you know. I'm sure that you heard that a plane crashed into World Trade Center 1. We're fine. We're in World Trade Center 2. I'm uh, obviously alive and well over here, but uh, obviously a pretty scary experience. I saw a guy fall out of probably the 91st story all the way down. So, <clears throat> you're welcome to give a call here. I think uh, we'll be here all day, but uh, give me a call back later. Love you. He was trying to reassure us that he was okay, but you could tell as he cleared his voice when he talked about seeing someone fall from the 91st floor that there was a lot of fear in his voice. It's available anytime I want to play it back. It's there. I hear it, and I know, I, I know it. And uh, I'm still very fragile to listen to it, and so I'm comforted to know it's there, but I don't, I don't listen to it. Eight floors above Brad in the South Tower was 42-year-old systems analyst Shimmy Beagleisen. The phone rang and it was Shimmy. Ma, don't worry, I'm fine. And I said, please don't waste any time. I know all about it. Get out. And he said, listen. And he put the receiver up to the loudspeaker and I heard the announcement. Do not leave your office. This building is secure. As we hung up, my nephew called. And he was practically incoherent. He said, Shimmy, trade center. I said, Shimmy is okay. And as I said, okay, I never got the K out because I saw the plane hit the other building. At 9.03, 17 minutes after the North Tower was struck, United Airlines Flight 175 flew into the South Tower. Immediately, the emergency services were flooded with calls as 700 people were trapped above the impact zone. Dispatch. Yes, hi. Hi. Major disaster number two, World Trade Center, requesting everything possible. Northwest Conference Room. Tower two. 
room 105. This is that. The World Trade Center people are trapped. Have a call on the line. The line is open. What, what are you on? They're, they're not answering. We're getting millions, millions of calls there. All I can say to do is stay near the window, stay low, put a towel by the end. The firefighters in the city are on their way over there. I understand that. All right, we're trying to get to people as fast as we can. Steven, um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane, and right now it's, uh, I think I'm okay, I'm safe now, but it's smoky. I just want to say how much I love you, and uh, I will uh, call you when I'm safe. Okay, Mom? Bye. a tribute to Stephen that at the moment of his death it can be said that he was on good terms with every member of his family and that's not easy Stephen was with us for 33 years and we have a choice we can either say we are so mad that he's not here or we can say we had him for 33 years and we have a feast to return to, the Feast of the Memories. The family came, girl, boy, girl, so there was a little triumvirate at the top. <laughs> and then four boys came in a very quick succession. And Stephen was the third of that group of four. very relaxed, smiling, laughing. He was very laid back, very happy. You know, he really was uh, happy a, a lot of the time. Stephen was really a peacekeeper within the family because we all have very strong personalities and at a dinner table we all want to voice our opinion and Stephen was the best I think of any of us of listening to all sides of an argument and really keeping the peace. That was the role that I thought he played in our family. He definitely did that, and it's a challenge to fill that role now. Following a successful career as a college basketball player, Stephen had moved to New York. At 33, he was now a trader with an investment company in the South Tower. September 11th it was a beautiful, beautiful day, as everyone always will remember, I know. I was very pleased to be going to a yoga class around the corner in the village hall. And at the end of the class, I walked home. And when I came into this house, there was a blinking light on the answering machine, and I had six messages not the usual thing. And one of the messages was from Stephen. Mom, it's Stephen. Um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane. And right now it's, uh, I think I'm okay, I'm safe now, but it's smoky. I just want to say how much I love you. 
and uh, I will uh, quote you when I'm safe. Okay, Mom? Bye. Stephen worked in the South Tower. He was on the 89th floor. He said that he was going to call me and that he was going to be all right. There were messages then from people calling to say, Anne, are your children all right? And then there was a message from my husband. And he said, promise me you will not turn on the television. And that was an easy promise to make. I just went out in the backyard and I sat in a plastic, you know, $5 plastic chairs under a tree and with the phone in my lap, preparing myself for what I would need to face. Families often have a map in their minds of where their loved ones are in the world. You know, if somebody in your family is working at a place that has now become the center of all the world's attention, and there's a calamity unfolding, in your mind, you're trying to place your loved one. Where are they in relationship to this terrible series of events that's unfolding? Just seconds before the South Tower was hit, Shimmy Beagleisen's mother had urged him to leave. Now he was trapped on the 97th floor. By 9.15, the family apartment in Brooklyn had filled with Shimmy's loved ones. The phone passed between them as each offered him consolation and advice. We had Shimmy on the phone. We were trying to find different ways how to calm him down and relax him, possibly other different ways of maybe getting out and trying different exits. At one point when I was talking to him, he uh, shared a few private things with me. He asked me to look after his wife and children. And all this time, I was able to hear in his voice that the situation was becoming a lot worse. There was now fire and dense smoke above the impact zone. Those trapped there began to panic. Shimmy's close friend, David, called to try and calm him. Shimmy? Yeah. Just hang in there. Just breathe slowly to the tower. You breathe to the tower? Sure. Okay, it's fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's very calm. Everything's going to be fine. You just, you have to stay calm. Everybody here is calm. I promise you. The girls don't even know at the same school. The parents are here. They're very calm. Just keep your head straight. 
Okay, do you see smoke by the window? The fire department wants to know. You can't see? Do we see smoke by the window? The fire department wants to know. No smoke by the window. No smoke by the window. No. Listen carefully. As a last resort, break the window as small as possible just to get a little air in. Okay, but you follow? Yeah. Okay, how's that? They said the last resort, we should open the window just a little bit to get some air in. Can you open, can you open the window or you have to break it? Yeah. Huh? I'm very grateful that he was able to spend his last moment speaking to the people who were closest to him. At the end of your life, I would imagine you want some sort of comfort, and I hope, and it seems from what everyone has told me, that he was given that. That's all I could hope for. In the North Tower, the first to be hit, Jim Gartenberg had been trapped by falling debris for more than half an hour. Having spoken to his wife, Jill, and best friend, Adam, Jim now wanted his predicament to be known to the watching world. He managed to make contact with a reporter at the New York Times, Jim Dwyer. I spoke with him several times that morning, and I was trying to understand what his predicament was, why he couldn't get to the, to the stairs or why he couldn't get to an exit. And he said that, you know, the walls were um, cracking and f folding over and, and he couldn't get to where he needed to be. Mr. Gartenberg seemed to be very directed, very focused. I mean, he was, you know, there's a sense of great urgency in his voice, but I, I didn't feel like he was panicking. He wanted people to know where he was and that he couldn't leave the building. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you, Nicole. Yay! Yay! Jim has always been a leader. And I think that showed through on that day. When I first met Jim, he was the president of the Michigan Alumni Club in New York. I saw the way that he was running this meeting and the way he was interacting with people and his leadership skills. There was all these qualities about him that all of a sudden I said, wow, this is a really special guy. After speaking to the New York Times, Jim's next call was to a local TV news program. At 9.32, 45 minutes after the North Tower was hit, Jim went live on air. Jim Gartenberg joins us. He was on the 86th floor of, uh, I'm not sure which tower, was it the north or south, Jim? It's World Trade Center 1, and it's not was. I am here, and I'm stuck right now. Now, you, are you above, Jim, or below? I have no idea. I have no idea where the plane hit. I'm, it's my understanding that it's a plane. Jim, um, there are two planes. One went into one tower. One went into the other tower. What, is, what do you see around you? I mean, are you in, are you in smoke? Are you in fire? I mean, the, the first thing that I want to make clear is that I'm stuck on the 86th floor. Um, a fire door has trapped us. 
Debris has fallen around us, and part of the core of the building is blown out. How many people are with you, Jim? I'm with one other person, and I'm told that people are aware of this. I'm on the 86th floor on the east side of the building facing the East River. And what time if did I'm you get... I'm on the air. I want to tell anybody that has a family member that may be in the building that the situation is under control for the moment, and the danger has not increased. So please, all family members, take it easy. I got a phone call from a friend of mine on my cell phone saying, Jill, Jim's going to be okay. He was just on national television and he said he's going to be okay. She told me what he said and how confident he was about it. They broadcast his voice. I still have tapes of that and listen to it and it's eerie. The, the, the voice that I hear on that is not his, and it's just so odd as far as the voice is concerned. But his message was unbelievably calm and brave and stoic. Having seen that was just a, a tremendous tribute. I think for a lot of people to be in crisis mode, they would just sit there and scream. And Jim would kind of regroup with himself, it seems like, and said, okay, this is the situation, how do I best deal with this? And he reached out to as many people as he could, trying to figure out what resources he had to be helpful in this situation. I mean, he had the, the sense of mind to do that. And the danger has not increased, so please all family members take it easy. I think that was wonderful, but I knew in my heart he was not going to be okay. Two thousand people were trapped in the north and south towers. Firefighters from across New York were sent to the scene. Knowing what he might soon face, Fireman Walter Hines left a hurried voice message for his wife. Walter knew this was so serious. I could tell from the sound of his voice. He knew this was something he might not get out of. And I think that he just needed to, to let us know that he loved us. The voice message that Walter left is still on his business phone, which I've kept in his office. I've probably listened to the message hundreds of times. Everybody has told me that, that has lost loved ones, that this, you lose the sound of their voice, that you can't remember the sound of people's voices after they've gone. And I, I tend to think that that's true. I think it's a good reminder to have Walter's message for my daughters that they can continue to hear him. While some messages provide consolation, others are a painful reminder of a missed opportunity to say goodbye. I woke up to my telephone ringing. I worked nights at the time, so I didn't want to be bothered. And then my cell phone rang again. And I'm like, I'm not going to answer it. Well, I'd say it was probably about 1 o'clock in the afternoon that my cell phone rang with a message. First fatal 
fly, and I'm in it, and I can't breathe. Tell everyone I love them. I don't get an idea. Ryan left that message, and that must have been the first or second phone call that I received that morning. And I mean, I just didn't realize it. You know, it's it's really hard to struggle with. You know, what would have happened if I answered the phone? You know, but I mean, I couldn't do anything, even if I did answer it. I keep the message on an MP3 file, so I have it on CD. I have it hidden away in a safe. I have it, you know, on every hard drive I have. I have it, like, everywhere, just so that nothing happens to it. It's Brian's last words. I mean, that's one of the reasons why recordings were made, was so people could record their last words. You know, I mean, I think it gives me a little bit of guidance. I, like, draw from Brian's strength when I hear the message. Just three floors below Brian Nunez in the North Tower was Melissa Harrington Hughes. She was trapped on the 101st floor. Shortly after the first plane had hit her building, Melissa had called her father. But 55 minutes later, he'd heard nothing since. When we stopped our conversation, I thought... She sounded in control of herself, and knowing my daughter Melissa the way I knew her, I didn't think she would have any problem getting out of the building. Whilst Melissa's father watched the events unfolding at home, her only brother Michael was at his office in Boston when he heard the news. I just started crying and just couldn't believe it. And really couldn't muster any words to anybody. I kind of had to go back up to work and say, I got to go. I was just thinking, I hope she got out. I hope she got out. Either by a stairs, elevator. Maybe they were going to bring helicopters. I didn't know. My sister was very protective of me. I can't say growing up I realized it, because as a younger brother, you don't... You're always thinking the negative when you're younger. You get mad, you get upset. I don't like you, get away from me, you know, the typical brother-sister thing. But as time progressed, she looked out for me tremendously. You jerk, it was working? No, it wasn't working. But you know what? What? It's working now. <laughs> The relationship between Melissa and my father when she was growing up, kind of in the teenage high school years, was probably hostile at times. You gotta think two people with the same traits, I mean, both strong-willed, nothing's ever gonna be easy. He was probably the only person she couldn't win against, was my father, and I think her traits came from him. Her drive and her strong will. Growing up, Melissa had always been determined to experience life beyond her small-town roots in Massachusetts. Melissa spent the summer in France. She had the idea that Paris was the greatest city in the world, loved the clothes, loved the hairstyles. 
She had long hair. When she came back, her hair was very short. That was a style in Paris. When she got off the airplane, her mother and I looked at her. We were like, we didn't expect that. Age 26, Melissa moved to California to work for a large internet communications company. Melissa was a very ambitious young lady. When she was in California, she bought a, uh, a BMW. I, I was like 60 years old when she bought the BMW. I never had a, a car as nice as that. I, I said to her, Melissa, can you afford it? She said, Dad, I may never have an opportunity to buy one again. She bought it. She loved it. She wasn't here that long, but she had a wonderful time in the 31 years that she was here. She always aimed for the best, and most of the time she got it. After speaking to her father, Melissa rang her husband, Sean, in San Francisco, to whom she'd been married for just a year. He was asleep when she called. Melissa met John at a junior club dance. That's basically how they started their relationship. He was a very nice young man, and they were an extremely attractive couple. I could tell when she introduced me to him, her eyes just kind of glowed, and I could tell right away that he was probably the one that she was going to marry, and she did. Your kiss is a sign of their new married love. May I present you for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. Sean Hughes. When I heard her message to Sean, I heard in her voice hopelessness. She was telling Sean that this is it, Sean, for me, but I'll love you forever, buddy. I don't know if I could say it was a good thing. It was good to hear her voice. Good to see that she called her husband. Emotional when you heard it. All sorts of different emotions coming out. Obviously sad because you're assuming when you hear it that she can't get out. But like I said, um, good emotions because I could hear her voice. Um, it's always good to hear the voice. An hour after the first plane struck the North Tower, some people were still struggling to make their first contact with loved ones. The phone networks were overloaded. By the time 41-year-old Tom McGuinness managed to get through to his wife, he already knew there was no possibility of escape. Right away I said, where are you? Where are you? And I'm almost annoyed because he's not answering me. And then he says, we're in a conference room that we can't get out of. We're trapped in a conference room. And I said, well, who's with you? And he rattles off the names of a couple of guys I know, 
three guys that were with him, plus these other people. And you could hear it in the background. You could hear people talking. You didn't hear panic. You heard, I remember one guy yelling, let's just knock down this goddamn wall. I remember telling him, I said, you're going to get out of there. I kept telling him that. And that's when he said to me, he goes, Eliana, you don't understand. He says, there are people jumping from the floors above us. And that's when I just thought, oh, my God. Like, what are these guys going through that they are seeing what's going on right above them? And it was just unbelievable. And I just kept saying, you're coming home tonight. You're coming home tonight. And he said, I love you. And he said, take care of Caitlin. He said, I have to get down on the floor. I love you. And that's when the I lost the connection at that point. There is a great comfort in the fact that I got to talk to him. And the funny thing about that comfort is it was not a great comfort that day or even, you know, weeks later. But it was a, it's a great comfort now. It was a great comfort months later. And the reason it was a great comfort is because... You know, it's not so much for me, but I feel that it was for him. It was his chance to say goodbye, his chance to say, take care of Caitlin. You know, he said, it'll be a miracle if we get out of here. He knew, he knew he wasn't going to get out. In the South Tower, the second to be hit, conditions were now desperate. Stephen Muldery worked alongside a group of close college friends, all former high school athletes. As the fire spread, the group made a collective decision to stick together and try and reach the roof. They now faced a grueling 21-story climb up the stairwells through heat and smoke. Stephen was passionate about basketball. But he was tiny and slight. I have a picture of him in eighth grade when he was devoted to basketball. And he is standing between two fully grown classmates who were his best friends. And he looks like he's the mascot. And he wasn't. He hung in there. I feel basketball was a critical element in the person he grew to be. He never lost the fire or the desire. I saw it in the aftermath of Stephen's death when the loyalty of all the people he had played basketball with was made evident to me. And I saw the gifts that had come from the teamwork. Stephen and his friends reached the top of the building, but the doors to the roof were locked. They retreated back down the stairwells and took refuge in an empty conference room on the 88th floor. Sharing a single mobile phone, each one took turns to say their goodbyes. Stephen and others passed the phone around and let people get word out to their family members. And at this point, there was a sense of dread among um, those people making the calls. There was a sense that they were doomed. People used their last minutes of conversation 
to talk with their families and their loved ones and their friends. They said, you made my life better, you know, uh, I want you to take care of so-and-so. I want you to, you know, know this about the truth of our lives. And um, it was a kind of a moment of a moment of truth for many people, a, a moment of desperate truth, but um, also transcendent truth. Sixty-five minutes after the North Tower was hit, a string of desperate calls was still being made from the building. For the family of 37-year-old Jeffrey Nussbaum, his struggle to live is documented in agonizing detail. My phone rang, and it was Jeff. And Jeff told me that the room is filling up with smoke, it was difficult for them to breathe. He told me the sprinkler systems went off and they were like ankle deep in water. When you're so emotionally involved, you really you don't look at your wristwatch. And the phone company sent me a breakdown of his phone bill. I waited over two years for him to be identified. So anything is cherishable to me. And what was identified was so microscopic. Did you hold on to everything? Even the telephone bill. By 10 o'clock, the rescue operation had made very little progress. The fire department had been blighted by malfunctioning radio receivers within the towers. Once inside on the stairwells, the firefighters could not communicate with each other. But that silence was about to be broken. Someone was able to make the radio receiver work and we have a remarkable, illuminating document of the effort to get up to the high floors in the South Tower. Battalion 7 on floor 40 of Tower 2. We got one elevator working up to the 40th floor, staffed by a member of Line 15. The man who repaired the radio receiver was 45-year-old Oreo Palmer. As chief of Battalion 7, Palmer was amongst the first to arrive at the scene. As he entered the South Tower, he single-handedly fixed an elevator and took it to the 40th floor, halfway to where almost 700 people were struggling to stay alive. And then he started to climb on foot. And because he was a very, very fit man, he was able to make tremendous progress. He had run marathons, he ran half marathons. He 
went 12 floors in 10 minutes wearing all the bunker gear, which had 50 or 60 pounds. We're going to have to host it up on, I'm on 69 now, but we need a higher price, please. Please stand where you are. I've been compromised. I'm giving police every floor. The walls are breached, so be careful. Okay. When I first heard Oviel's voice on the tapes, you can tell he knows he's in a race against time. Oreo's conserving his oxygen, he's conserving his energy. That's why there's not a lot of chatter on his part on the tape. During his ascent, Palmer discovered that one stairwell, the south, was still intact all the way to the impact zone and beyond. For the hundreds trapped there, this stairwell could have been an escape route. The 78th floor in the South Tower was the bridge point between living and the dead. It was a transfer spot in the elevator system, and a lot of people had mass there. And when the second plane hit, a lot of them were killed outright, a lot of them were injured and waiting for help. And uh, Oriel Palmer was rising and racing to that point to get to them. We got close. I saw in the pockets of fire. We should be able to knock it down with two lines. Where you going? Where you going? 78 floor. And it's numerous 1045 cold lines. 478. Ah. 1044. Numerous civilians. We're going to two engines up here. Ah. All right, 1044. We're on our way. Ah. Norio got up there pretty quick. Anyone who was wounded or dying, to know somebody was able to get up there, they knew there had to be a way out. The people who were there at the point of impact to have seen him, I can only imagine there must have been some uh, elation or euphoria that's probably undescribable. Maybe. Just to see him and realize uh, there's some hope here thanks to this guy who just made it up here. When I heard the tapes, you were watching a screen with all the words on it, but with a digital countdown, so you knew exactly what was coming. You knew the exact minute that the towers were going to go down. And you can't help but feel like you want to jump out of your seat and say, hurry up and get out of there. You know, you have one more minute before they, it comes down. And that's the hard part. That was the hard part. I was not surprised when I heard that Oreo had made it to the 78th floor. He made it up to the point of impact. And it's... Amazing. He left a story behind. My kids will have it. Their kids will have it. And I just feel that it's to honor his memory and the person that he was. Seven minutes after Palmer's last words, the South Tower would collapse. There is one 911 call which captures this moment from inside the building. It highlights the moral complexity 
of hearing the suffering of those trapped. From the 105th floor of the South Tower, father of three, Kevin Cosgrove, was still speaking up until the moment when the tower fell. His words haunt me, and I try not to think about it, but it's also, in a way, kind of a comfort to know where he was and what he went through and what he was trying to do, um, and not many people have that. Parts of Kevin's call were deliberately made public when it was played by the prosecution in the trial of a key 9-11 terrorist. It was used to illustrate the human suffering on that day. The first copy of it wasn't cleaned up at all. There was a lot of background noise, and it was hard to hear what he was saying. And uh, it was certainly hard to listen to him not being able to breathe very well. the first one to fall. Some people said, you know, hearing Kevin's words has made the events of 9-11 more human for them, that there were really people in there and it wasn't just buildings. One lady called him the voice from the towers. It made it real for her, that it wasn't just a news story. It seemed like it was just a movie. But then when they heard Kevin speaking, realized this was a real thing with real people inside. For Wendy Cosgrove, there is comfort from the fact that almost 10 minutes of the call were not played in court. I'm glad that I have some that are just my own private memories that I don't have to share with the world. Um, because it is rather hard to share my husband's last words the entire world. So it's nice to have something a little private. I guess what I would want people to learn from listening to the recording is that life is short, that you never know when you're going to lose your loved ones, and to spend every minute you can showing them that love. And that's what's important in life. After 62 minutes, the South Tower, although the second to be hit, was the first to fall. 
almost a thousand civilians and firefighters died. Along with Kevin Cosgrove, they included Brad Fetchett, Shimmy Beagleisen, firefighter Walter Hines, battalion chief Oreo Palmer, and Stephen Mulderry. The phone rang, and it was Amy, my youngest daughter. And the first thing I said to her was, where's Stephen? And she didn't answer. There was just silence. I got home, and I called my mother, uh, and she was so happy to hear my voice. Um, and I told her about Stephen. Uh, and I just know she just screamed. And that was it. She knew he was gone. And a sound came out of me that I'd never heard in my life. It was just an animal sound. And I knew when I heard that sound for the first time in my life, that howl, that it was universal. And that, you know, my family and I had joined all the losses of all the ages. Mom, it's Steven. Um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane. And right now, it's, uh, I think I'm okay, I'm safe now. The message that he left for me meant everything to me. I mean, I clung to it. I listened to it repeatedly in the days after. But I did put it aside at a certain point and say that I would not continue to do that. And a very odd thing happened, and it is that as time went by, I created a new message that had never been left. I added to what he had left, thinking he had left it. In his message to me, he said, I'll be all right and I will call you. In the message that I then began living with, you know, maybe a year after, was, I'll be all right and you will too. I made him say it in my memory over and over and over again. Although the first to be hit, the North Tower was still standing. For those with loved ones trapped inside, the collapse of the South Tower was a terrifying premonition. When the first tower went down, I was hoping that Melissa had gotten out of the building. I knew she was not in that tower.
Dad really wanted her to call back. Sean had told us that she had called him. He really wanted her to call back again. And um, just nervously anxious was the way I viewed him. As a parent, you always want to have hope. I thought that if there was a way to get out of the building, that Melissa, at that point in time, that she would have been out of the building. I was on the phone with one of Jim's friends when the first tower collapsed. All you could hear if you listened in on the call was just crying and wailing. And then this, after about five or ten minutes of that, this sense of calm that, oh wait, that's not his tower. It feels strange to report on the events of that day that we just isolated Jimmy's safety and how we could distance ourselves from the horrific event and the casualties that everybody else faced. But that, that felt like our duty. My parents were down in Florida on September 11th. They were not watching television until I told them to turn it on. My father was counting the floors to see, because he saw, he saw it on television. He was trying to figure out if Jim was above or below where the plane had hit. The first thing my father said to me was, he was such a great father. You know, and I said, that makes it real, because for me to think he's not going to make it out is one thing, but for my father to say that, because if it's in the past, that made it real, more real for me, that this was really, his life was ending. At 10.28, 102 minutes after it was hit, the North Tower fell. I saw the tower fall. Yeah, I saw the tower fall down. And I knew for sure. I'd never hear from him again. I saw his life end right there. I felt, uh, you know, my heart had been ripped from my body. I can't ever remember feeling that sadness ever in life or that much, that much emotion and tears and um, nor do I hope I ever will. My wife Beverly was working teaching school in Chicopee. I had to drive to Chicopee to inform my wife that Melissa was in, in the North Tower. We were listening to the whole thing on the radio when we were driving back. And on our way home, the North Tower collapsed. My wife asked me to shut the radio off. I shut the radio off and we came home and cried together. When the North Tower collapsed, 1,402 civilians were killed. Along with Melissa Harrington Hughes and Jim Gartenberg, 
They included Christopher Hanley, Brian Nunez, Jeffrey Nussbaum, and Tom McGuinness. The question really about the Trade Center is what are our memories made out of? Are they made out of uh, images and myths? Are they made out of the hard facts? The audible record of that day is essential because if history is going to be a tool for the living, if memory is going to be something that we can rely on, then you can't blink, you can't turn away. You have to say, this is what happened, and this is how it happened. For the families, the pain of September the 11th may never recede. But now that several years have passed, they are beginning to understand the profound legacy of their loved one's final words. My mother is very philosophical. She doesn't get stuck by, by something like this. I, I think she recognizes it and it sort of absorbs it and tries to make the most of it and she looks forward. So she's doing well, I think. The world doesn't stop for every tragic loss of life. And, you know, I kind of wish the world could. The world gets too busy. And I understand, you can't. You'd be in constant grieving. It's too easy for me to fall into a place where life is only about endurance. And I think that's a very poor way to live life. It's, it's ignoring all the gifts you're given. And I didn't want to be that way. I didn't want to be that way. And, you know, I can say that I don't think I have. Jim called me, you know, instantaneously as soon as it happened. His first response was, he needs to talk to me. To have his voice, just to have his voice is, it's nice. Even though it's panic mode, it's some last memories. Good job, Nicole. Keep going. When Jim passed away, I was three months pregnant. You know, here I am with this special gift, as far as I'm concerned, that he left me with. And to me, that's so important that we had that. She has his personality. She's quick-witted, and her sense of humor is just like him. You're fast. Good job. So knowing that, you know, she's such a part of him and that my other child's such a part of him, it makes me, makes me happy, that part. I was the last one from the outside world to talk to Melissa. We were able to say how much we loved each other, and I think of it constantly, all of the time. Ever since Melissa's passing, I don't want to put a good spin on it, but it's changed him. It's made him more aware of things, I should say. He's more loving man now than he was before. Didn't show his feelings as much before, and now he does. 
like with my son, who was coincidentally, which was kind of fate, I would have to say, was born on September 11th. When you leave the face of this earth, all you leave are your children. That's your legacy. Melissa brought a lot of joy into our lives. My inner peace with Melissa's death might come from the fact that I spoke to her. I find a lot of pleasure knowing that uh, uh, Melissa called me, knowing that we were able to say our last goodbyes, basically. I got to talk to Melissa in person in, in uh, I'll take that to my grave. Please subscribe to the Detour Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search Detour Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the Detour Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.
Do you have a question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. great deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend and thanks for listening.